millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we are looking at a true classic, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981. In terms of the format of the episode, we shall start with a little background information on the film, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film, saying what I like and dislike about it, and then rating it out of 10. Right. You are a legendary archaeologist who has just returned from Peru, where you only just escaped with your life. After teaching a class, a man you have known well for many years leads you to two army intelligence officers who want you to go on a secret mission. Little do you know that you are about to go on an adventure of a lifetime as you try to stop the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Unsurprisingly, I suppose, for a film of this magnitude, there's quite a lot of interesting background information here. I'm not going to go over all of it because there's far too much to cover, but I'm just going to pick out one or two interesting stories and facts about the film and its making. To begin with, we're going to talk about the chamber where they find the Ark of the Covenant, the one that's filled with snakes. For this scene, they actually used seven thousand snakes, most of which admittedly were not poisonous except for the cobras. However, one of the staff members was actually bitten by a python. In terms of the scenes where you see Indiana Jones and Marion very close to the snakes, there was actually a very thin layer of glass between them, and there was a real issue with the snakes spitting venom onto the glass, and there had to be a lot of reshooting. One interesting fact about this chamber is that if you look at the hieroglyphs that are quite close to the Ark of the Covenant, it's possible to see R2-D2 and C-3PO amongst them from Star Wars. It's not that surprising that they're, they're put there as a bit of an Easter egg because the writer was George Lucas, who also wrote Star Wars. In one very, very classic scene, you have Indiana Jones 
facing off against a man in the marketplace. And the man swings his sword around and he looks quite formidable. Indiana Jones then just pulls out his gun and shoots him. That scene was not supposed to go that way. Originally, the idea was to have Harrison Ford whip the sword out of his hand and then there to be a bit of a fight between them. But Harrison Ford, along with most of the crew, got food poisoning the night before, and so there were some edits, which just ironically led to one of the most classic scenes of the film. <laughs> Amazingly, though, this was the only Indiana Jones film to be nominated for the Best Picture Award. Kind of insane when you consider how much argument there is over which is the best Indiana Jones film. This was also easily the highest grossing film of 1981, making $389.9 million at the box office with a budget of just $20 million. In terms of the cast, as I'm sure most people listening are well aware of, Harrison Ford plays Indiana Jones, Karen Allen plays Marion, John Reese davis who would later go on to be Gimli in Lord of the Rings, plays Salah, Paul Freeman plays Belloc, and Ronald Lacey plays the ever-so-creepy tote. Okay, so we're now going to go over the historical accuracy for the film, just sort of saying what the film gets right and wrong, essentially. So, at the beginning of the film, Indiana Jones is using a map to find a temple in Peru. And I will say, this is all rather convenient. I've talked about, you know, using maps to find artefacts and films before. I think it was with the uh, the Curse of King Tut's Tomb episode I did. But you don't really ever get a map just leading to an archaeological site. It, it just doesn't happen that way. There's a lot more to it. Also, when they do get to the tomb, again, as I've spoken about in a lot of these films, because it's a bit of a trope, there's just kind of traps all over the place. And I find it kind of ironic that to archaeologists today, and probably to archaeologists back in 1936 when this film was set as well, the actual traps here would have been more interesting than the artefact that Indiana Jones is going after. Ultimately, for each of these traps, there'll be a lot of like documentation that would need to be done. There'll be measurements to be taken. There'll be photos to be taken. Academically, there'll be a lot of articles written about them. Ultimately, a site like this would take years to properly excavate and to study. And one thing that a proper archaeologist would not be doing at this point is running through them and setting them off. At one point, quite early on into him entering the tomb, Indiana Jones gets a lot of, like, tarantulas on his back. First things first, they were real tarantulas that were used in the filming. But also, in my experience of archaeology, you do get sort of wildlife on you, and, you know, it's quite a messy profession, essentially. I'd say probably the most interesting story I have when it comes to wildlife would be... I was digging on a site in Aylesbury in England. Basically, I was excavating a Roman cemetery, sort of like a, a Christ, you know, Christian Roman cemetery. We had just sort of returned from lunch, and one of my colleagues, they basically went up to the grave they were excavating, and then they said there was a lizard in there. So a few of us went over and we had a look, and there are certain types of lizards in the UK that are protected. In fact, they're usually protected throughout Europe. And it was quickly realised that this was one of them. I think it was because it had quite a red belly. I wish I could remember what the type of lizard was called, to be honest. But essentially, it meant that digging on that grave had to stop for the time being. 
And about four of us stood around this lizard because it's not even legal for us to touch it. An expert had to be called and we had to stand around it while we waited. And most of the time, the lizard just kind of stayed underneath a bucket by the side of the, the grave. But there was one point, I remember, where it ran into the grave and sort of like buried itself in the eye sockets of the actual skeleton. And then when finally the uh, the animal expert did arrive, all they did was they got a bucket and they sort of pushed the lizard into the bucket and walked off. It's sort of a bit weird. Like, I get these things are protected, but any one of us could have done that. <laughs> but hey, you know, it was uh, it was an hour off of work, I guess. Anyway, I'm getting distracted again. Let's move on with the film. One thing I will say about Indiana Jones here is he doesn't really seem like an archaeologist at all. He seems like a Tomb Raider. I mean, when he does get the golden statue that he's after, well, first of all, him escaping basically leads to the entire tomb being destroyed. So that I get that he's escaping for his life, but yeah, I... He shouldn't have been going after the golden statue to begin with, so I don't have that much sympathy. <laughs> but he gets out of the tomb, and that's when he bumps into probably the main villain in the film, who's called Belog. It's kind of like his main rival. And Belog is there with the Hovitos tribe, I think they're called. First things first, the Hovitos tribe is made up for the film. They're not a real tribe. But also... Okay, so we're supposed to believe that Indiana Jones is the good guy here and Belog is the deceitful one who's trying to steal the artefact. But they make it quite clear that the artefact is of great importance to the Hovitos tribe, who are still very much in existence and thriving by the looks of it. So why is Indiana Jones any better than Belog here? They're both trying to steal the artefact. They're just going about it in different ways. If anything, Belog's better because he didn't destroy the entire tomb in the process. Both men are literally just trying to steal from this tribe. Anyway, moving on. So, after this scene, we move forward to Indiana Jones, and he's basically teaching a class about uh, a Neolithic site. And the first thing he says is that Neolithic means new stone, because Neo means new, and Lithic means stone. That's pretty accurate, actually, and I will admit I don't know much about Neolithic sites, but the site he's talking about, I think it's uh, Turk Dean Barrow near Hazelton. That is a real site. I believe it's, uh, it's somewhere in England. I think it's in Gloucestershire, so southwest England. And yeah, you do tend to get sort of a lot of barrows there, which are essentially burial mounds. From what I understand, the actual excavations there didn't happen until the 1980s, but... More or less, this is actually not that bad in terms of history. After this scene, an old friend of Indiana Jones named Marcus comes into the classroom and they start talking about Indiana Jones's trip to Peru, amongst other things. During this conversation, Marcus talks about the International Treaty for the Protection of Antiquities. This treaty is not a real thing. It was made up purely for the film. And from what I can understand, although... Some people are starting to get that maybe we shouldn't be looting tombs and things. There wasn't that much protection for antiquities at this time. So 1936, essentially. The first kind of treaty I can think of that would deal with the actual protection of antiquities would be the Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the event of an armed conflict from 1956. But as the name kind of suggests, that was more 
for potential war more than anything. Though that's not to say there weren't some protections in peacetime also. I'd say really the first proper one would have been the UNESCO Conference of 1970, which basically talked about how countries have the right to their own property and meant that museums had to have the correct documentation to accept antiquities. But, I mean, I'm not going to go into that too much because I've spoken about that in previous episodes. Um, the main one, I think, would probably be part two of The Mummy 1959. However, during this scene, Indiana Jones basically pulls out some of the other smaller artefacts that he found in the temple. And he says that he wants to sell these to the museum so he can buy a plane ticket. Marcus then says that the museum would probably take them no questions asked. My question to this is why? Why would the museum take them no questions asked? There's no way of verifying whether they're real or not. Indiana Jones, when he was going through that temple, he didn't take any photographs, he didn't take any notes. He has no evidence that these are real artefacts. After this, Marcus then reveals that there's two army intelligence officers who want to speak to Indiana Jones. And Indiana Jones jokes that, oh, what, is he in trouble? I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, he should be. He should be going to jail for something like this. But actually, it turns out that the army intelligence officers want Indiana Jones' help. They explain that the Nazis are starting to look for ancient artefacts that can help them to basically become more powerful. This is sort of right. So I think it was under Himmler, I want to say, that the Nazis basically formed a type of pseudo-archaeology, and it was very much part of their propaganda machine. A lot of it was focused on trying to find proof for a superior Aryan race to justify, well, what they were doing, basically, and, and you know, to justify things like hostile takeovers, that kind of thing. And to also sort of instill a kind of nationalistic pride in the German people with the idea that they were kind of almost like the cradle of civilization. It was nasty stuff, as is unsurprising considering we're talking about Nazis. What is quite interesting, though, is that this Nazi archaeology basically started in 1935. So the year before this film was set. So time-wise, it's pretty good in that regard. Though... I don't think they ever had an archaeological excavation in Egypt. But on the other hand, I do believe one of the artefacts they went over was the Ark of the Covenant, so there is something here at least. One thing that always makes me laugh a little bit whenever I watch this film is the part where Indiana Jones gets really excited because he realises that the Nazis have found the lost city of Tanis. Tanis wasn't really a lost city, so... In sort of the 21st and 22nd dynasty of Egypt, it was the capital of the country. Then, largely because of like the shifting Nile and things like that, it did sort of get abandoned and a new capital was set up. But it wasn't really lost, it just kind of fell into disrepair. And in fact, even in the 1700s, it was known about and being recorded. And after that, I believe it was in the 19th century, archaeology started there. So I think to say it was a lost city is a bit of a stretch and it certainly wasn't a lost city in 1936. Marcus then reveals that Tanis is one of the potential resting places of the Ark of the Covenant. Again this is purely made up for the film there are no theories that the Ark of the Covenant was in Tanis although in fairness I do actually like their explanation for why the Ark would be in Tanis. So basically they argue that Shishak who well, that's his biblical name. In Egypt, it's very likely a pharaoh named Shishonk. Basically raided 
Jerusalem, took the Ark from the Temple of Solomon, and then took it back to Tanis where he's, he hid it. In fairness to the film, as I said, in the Bible he's called Shishak, in Egypt he's known as Shishok I. But he was the first pharaoh named in the Bible, which is a really cool fact. And due to this cross-referencing of the Bible and Egyptian history, we're actually able to have our first definite date in Egyptian history. So that would be 925 BC, when Shishak took the treasures from Jerusalem. The only problem with this theory the film presents is that the Ark went missing in the 5th century BCE. So, what, like... 400 odd years after this? Though actually, Shishunk I is a really interesting pharaoh. He comes shortly after my specialist area. So my specialist area tends to be the 20th and the 21st dynasty, which is a time period known as the Late New Kingdom and Early Third Intermediate Period. So it's hard to make this simple, but Essentially, in the 21st dynasty, Egypt was split in two. At this time, Libyans were ruling over Egypt, but they were ruling as if they were Egyptians. And you had Pharaoh ruling in northern Egypt, and you had what was known as the High Priest of Amun ruling in the south. And again, like the High Priest of Amun's capital was Thebes, and the capital of the Pharaoh in northern Egypt was Tanis. So like in the film. And although the country was split in two, there wasn't really any animosity because, generally speaking, they were from the same family. So the high priest of Amon and the pharaoh were often either cousins or brothers, something like that. However, during the 20th dynasty, there had been a gradual decline in Egyptians' authority in sort of foreign countries, and the borders of Egypt had slowly been shrinking. That only continued in the 21st dynasty because everything was very inward-looking. There wasn't really that much concern for foreign affairs. So Shishok I did a couple of things. Firstly, he was the founder of the 22nd dynasty. And one of his first things was to kind of make the country more united. And he didn't do this necessarily through military measures. A lot of the time it was through things like marriage alliances, and he also decreased the power of the high priest of Amon, who had previously been ruling pretty much on their own the entirety of the south of Egypt. Once the country was a bit more united, that's when he did a thing that a pharaoh hadn't done in a really long time. He started to look outward at other countries. So to begin with, he went south, and he and his armies went into the Sudan, so what was back then known as Nubia, and he took back a lot of control of, of that area. However, after that, the army marched back up through Egypt and went into Palestine, and he started a campaign there. And it's around this time that we get the conflicts with Jerusalem, so we get the cross-referencing with the Bible, and the first exact dates in Egyptian history. Basically put... For me, I, I think Shishunk I is a really important pharaoh, and he's not one that is commonly known about. Which is a real shame, because when it comes to the Third Intermediate Period, which is the time period he's in, it's a really understudied time. 
One of the reasons I, I actually study the 21st dynasty, which is the early third intermediate period, is purely for that reason, because it's, an, it's a time period that needs more research, and we do need more people specialising in it. Anyway, back to the film. Marcus then claims that after Shishonk brought the Ark back to Tanis, a huge sandstorm covered the entire city and it had to be evacuated. This is complete nonsense. This didn't happen. Tanis remained the capital for the remainder of the 22nd dynasty. We're going to now skip forward a little bit to when Indiana Jones is in Tanis. And so he basically climbs down into what was called in the film the map room, where he uses the staff of Ra to basically... So like the sun positions in a way and it shoots a laser onto a 3D map of Tanis on the ground, revealing the location of the lost Ark. Now, obviously, this is all quite fantastic. This isn't real. Not Even the map room isn't something that the Egyptians had. That's not an Egyptian concept. However, the location he's in does look quite nice. I will say the actual entrance he comes down from is entirely not Egyptian. It's not the correct architecture. But when you got past that entrance, the actual area they're in looks quite a lot like an Egyptian tomb and it does remind me a bit of the workman tombs from Deir al Medina just in a slightly bigger size and in fact even on the back wall you do see a depiction of the weighing of the heart ceremony so you see the big scales with the heart on one side and the feather of Ma'at on the other and then you have Osiris watching over it and there's also a few other gods that are related to tombs as well, like you have Nekbet on top of the wall, and you also have a couple of images of Anubis, so the dog-headed god, who essentially is kind of like the guardian of the tomb. I've spoken a little bit about Anubis in my episode on The Mummy 1959, so once again I'm going to tout that episode and say if you want, if you want to know more about that, listen to that episode. <laughs> but basically... Because of this staff, Indiana Jones finds out where they need to be digging. And he exits the tomb, and basically there's a big excavation going on, run by the Nazis, but they're digging in the wrong place. So he takes a few diggers to the correct place and starts digging to find the tomb. My first thought when I saw this was, how are the Nazis not seeing this random group of diggers digging in a completely different place? But then, on second thought, I thought fair enough, actually, because the actual excavation that the Nazis are running here is a complete mess. Like, there isn't any structure whatsoever, and it really doesn't represent an archaeological site whatsoever. And again, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. There's a lot of people digging, there's a lot of animals wandering around, but you don't get anyone taking notes, you get no one taking photographs or anything like that, you get no documentation. And fair enough, you could argue maybe that's because that's not what the Nazis were trying to do. But I still feel they would be doing some documentation. After all, surely they've got to show their results to someone at some point. The final thing I want to talk about in this episode is the actual Ark of the Covenant itself. So when they pull it out of the sort of like a gravel box, I suppose. Well, first things first. There's absolutely no way that Indiana Jones and Sulla would have been able to lift a solid granite slab like that on their own. And I don't care how strong you are, you can't lift something like that. And also they just like throw it on the ground, which is not great either. <laughs> but from what I can see, the actual arc itself looks pretty good. So 
in the book of Exodus in the Bible, it does have a pretty detailed description of what the ark looks like and what it was made of. So it was made from acacia wood, which was then covered by pure gold. On each corner, it had four rings, which were used to slot two wooden beams through for like carrying. And on the top, it had two cherubim birds made of pure gold, and they basically were facing each other with their wings sort of like pointing upwards. And that's pretty much what we see in this film. And I'm sure there are some people out there who can probably nitpick and say they didn't get this detail right, they didn't get that detail right. I will admit I'm not an expert on biblical history, but from what I can see, it looks pretty good. So overall, in terms of actual history, this film, it's not brilliant. It does get a few bits right here and there, but ultimately Indiana Jones is, he's more of a Tomb Raider than he is an archaeologist. And just generally the the way they depict archaeology in this film is really, really bad. Also, they talk about Tannis being buried by a massive sandstorm, which is completely fabricated. However, on the upside, they do mention Shishonk the first, and they call him Shishak as he's called in the Bible, which is quite cool. They do get the Ark of the Covenant looking pretty good, I think. And when Indiana Jones is in the classroom, although he's talking about things that haven't happened yet, the history there is pretty decent. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section of the episode. So here I'm just going to talk about what I like in the film, what I dislike, and then rate the film out of 10. So I am going to start with the parts that I quite liked. To begin with, just broadly, this film introduces one of the greatest characters of all time and also the greatest theme music of all time. I mean, it's completely and utterly iconic. And it doesn't matter whether it's this first film, whether it's the Temple of Doom, whether it's whether it's Raiders of Lost Ark, even whether it's Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I guarantee even this new one that's coming out that I know the reviews aren't looking brilliant for, but I'm still really excited for, every time I see Indiana Jones and every time I hear that theme music, I just get a tingle down my spine. It's iconic. Also, just in general, there's so many 
classic scenes in this film. Like, just off the top of my head, you have the boulder scene at the beginning. You have the scene with the guy with the big sword where Indiana Jones just shoots him. You have the scene with the face melting. You have the scene with the Ark of the Covenant going into the warehouse. How can anyone not love that? Also, just in general, I mean, this film was directed by Steven Spielberg. And all of Spielberg's films just... I can't really even explain it. They just have this kind of presence to them that's so undeniable. I think the only thing I can think of that isn't Spielberg that has it is probably Stranger Things, but that's largely because they're trying to replicate it. And let's face it, Stranger Things is great, in my opinion anyway. But when it comes to Raiders of Lost Ark, I quite like the fact that the, the acting and the script is a little bit over the top in a very kind of like early adventure B-movie kind of way. And it's quite clear that this is deliberate because this film is based off of those B-movies. But it really works for the film and it really works for the style of Spielberg, I feel. Especially considering the fact that we're throwing George Lucas in, who, let's face it, George Lucas, he's a great writer. He, he There's no denying that he's made some of the best series of all time. But I do feel he's a man who's got his extreme strengths and weaknesses and i feel that him and spielberg just work so well together though he is a really good writer his style does very much suit this kind of b-movie-esque feel i will also say just in general indiana jones isn't the sole reason this film is good though take uh take marion for instance in my opinion marion is well she's easily the best female in the Indiana Jones series. I think there's an argument that she's the best companion of Indiana Jones in the series as well. Although, admittedly, there are others in contention there, like I would say Salas in the in the running as well. As I, I have a bit of a soft spot for Short Round as well, I quite like him. In fact, going off of topic a little bit, Short Round is actually, or the actor who plays him at least, Ki Hui Kwan, has recently got back into acting and the last film I saw him in was um, Everything Everywhere All at Once, and it's just a phenomenal film. Like, I really, really can't recommend it enough. In its own right, it's a 10 out of 10 film. But either way, going back to the original points, Indiana Jones is not the only reason this film is so good. You've also got Sulla, who, who's a fantastic character. You've also got Marion, who's just an awesome character as well. And even when it comes to the villains, like, Belloc is a really good villain who kind of works as a sort of darker version of indiana jones tote is so slimy and so he's the kind of german he's got the bald heads he's quite sweaty he's kind of betrayed as quite brutal and he has that really good scene where he enters the tent and he pulls out what looks like an implement of torture and he starts putting it together and it turns out just to be a clothes hanger for his coat. It's all really funny stuff and he's, they're all just fantastic characters. I, I can't really praise the film enough for that. Although the whole film is really good, the last 50 minutes or so are... they just It just steps up. In that last 50 minutes, you go from the fight scene where Indiana Jones is fighting the, well, the actor slash wrestler Pat Roach by the plane to... A long car chase where he's trying to get the lost Ark, to the opening of the Ark, to the face melting, and to one of the greatest endings in film history where we see the Ark being led into the warehouse. 
It's literally just classic scene after classic scene after classic scene, all with a scattering of really good comedy. Like, for instance, where Indiana Jones is covered in bruises when he's on the ship with the pirates, and Marion turns the mirror around and actually smacks him in the face. It's just, there's so much to like in this film. However, we have now arrived at the bad stuff. And I will admit, they're quite few and far between, to be honest. I will say... I'm not going to go into great detail because I want to keep this podcast a bit light, but I do find the relationship between Marion and Indiana Jones a little bit uncomfortable. And if you want to know why, I guess just Google that. But there is a hint early on in the film about that. There's also just a few plot holes. like for, Well, not plot holes, but bits that are a bit of a stretch. Let's put it that way. Like, for instance, when Indiana Jones is on the pirate ship... And you've got the submarine and somehow in the space of about what, like 20 seconds, he swims from the ship to the submarine. And then as it's going down, first of all, he's very lucky that the hatch isn't locked. So he just opens that and goes down because I'm pretty sure as a submarine is sinking into the water, that hatch is going to be sealed tight. But then he's very lucky that there's no one at the bottom of the ladder to see him. And that allows him to basically stow away. But even when we're going with this second point... In its own right, it's a bit of an iconic scene. And so although it is sort of a bit of a stretch, maybe a plot hole, it's not really a huge deal. In terms of the reviews for this film, I'm sure you're all going to be shocked, absolutely shocked to know that they're pretty damn good. Uh, so on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 93% as a critical score and 96% as an audience score. Then on IMDb, it has 8.4 out of 10, which, to be honest with you, to me actually sounds weirdly low. And, well, general themes and consensuses are that it's a fantastic cast, a great story, an excellent movie, and one of the greatest films of all time. As Indiana Jones is one of my favourite film series of all time, but couldn't agree more. For myself, I can't give this film anything less than 10 out of 10. I absolutely love it. In my opinion, this is a perfect film. What's more, there's a very big argument that this played a big part in my love for history and the reason I became an archaeologist. And I'm certainly not saying it hasn't led to some misconceptions about archaeology and things like that. It absolutely has, but it's also led to so many people becoming archaeologists. Honestly, I, I do think that this film has earned its space as one of the greatest films of all time. Thank you very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, why not consider liking, subscribing, leaving a comment, as I seem to say after pretty much every episode at the moment, because this final part, in all honesty, makes me feel a bit like a robot. And join me on Monday, where we shall be looking at one of the strangest requests I've ever had. An episode of the spin-off series from Baywatch, named Baywatch Nights. In this episode, named The Servant, our hero, David Hasselhoff, has to take on an ancient Egyptian mummy that has risen from the dead. Because, why not, I guess? And then, join me again on Thursday, where we shall be looking at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I really hope that all of you have a fantastic remainder of your week and see you then.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.